biggest inspiration for architects, engineers, and contractors. Hello, this is Arni Heiskanen. You're about to hear a presentation, The Future of Sustainable Building, given by Martin Townsend, director of BREEAM BRE Global, at Grandland Energy Seminar 2014, recorded on June 5th in Helsinki, Finland. This recording was kindly provided by Grandland, www.grandland.fi. I had a great conversation with a couple of people last night around, so what are the issues you're facing in Finland? What are the challenges that you need to address? So you don't want me to talk about issues which are abstract to the challenges you're facing in Finland. You want me to talk about the context of what's going on worldwide and how BRE and Bream are here to help you. And, and as I kind of mentioned at the start, this is an incredibly noisy space. Everybody has a view on sustainability now. You know, if we go back a, a number of years, um, we were unconscious, we were unaware of what we needed to do. Now, I think there is a massive amount of opinion in this space. And I think what's important for us as professionals is to actually grab that knowledge and make sense of it and actually make sure that we make a difference. And one of the conversations I was having just over coffee is when we talk about sustainability, we really need to understand what sustainability is. It's not about the certificate on the wall. That's a great byproduct. It's about the social issues, the environmental issues, the economic success. We need to make sure that the badge of sustainability actually makes more sense than just, just a series of words. So to make sense of my presentation, uh, I want to sort of feed in four main themes. Uh, they'll be a little bit random throughout the presentation, but actually I want to make sure that I can give you confidence in terms of what we're doing and the direction of sustainability. I want to actually understand and actually share with you the role of assessment methodologies in that context. Value becomes important. Why do we do this? What's the value equation in terms of um, driving sustainability and where do we see value? And how do we create that knowledge? How do we share knowledge to actually move the profession forward? So those are my ingredients. But the question I was asking myself this morning, and I don't know uh, where all of you come from. I've not had a chance to speak to all of you. But what's your agenda? And I think there's an interesting quote from the Financial Times, which for me summarises this conversation really, really well. And I'm hoping that that actually makes sense to you as professionals, that those that understand about some of the environmental stresses and strains and actually create new ideas, new innovation, new business models around the stresses and strains and the social agenda are going to be organisations that businesses that grow. Those that basically don't understand that kind of agenda actually have probably got less chance of growth and less chance of success. And I thought that Financial Times quote um, was quite a good way of hoping that I'm connecting with you in terms of understanding what, what your agenda is around. Challenge me later if it's not, because I'm always up for a good conversation. But I think what's also important, it's not just about us in this room, it's not even about your colleagues back in the office. If you start to look at some of the survey data and some of the statistics in terms of where opinion is going, so your family, your colleagues, the graduates that you've recruited into your offices, they are making decisions in terms of their buying and their decisions around social, economic and environmental issues. So when we talk about society and business models changing, it is very much around 
what the agenda is at the moment and how it's rapidly changing. And I thought those statistics from a recent survey were quite, quite telling in terms of maybe how the next generation are going to become even more astute around this agenda about sustainability and green buildings. And equally, for those of you um, sort of CEOs and directors here who are actually looking at this business agenda, the amount of growth happening in terms of creating new jobs around sustainability, environmental performance is massive. So if we look at the European, the wider European context, in terms of this sector and how this sector is changing, there is a massive amount of growth in this space. So I've mentioned all that and I've not even actually mentioned uh, the job that I do. So what's the role of assessment tools? What's the role of the work that we do? And I think one thing that, that really frustrates me sometimes is, is about looking at assessment methodologies as tick-box exercises. As far as I'm concerned, this is going to be a little bit of a theme of mine that I'm going to try and pull out through this presentation is we need to make sure that we're actually creating standards that inspire people. We need to create standards that basically inspire people to do better, to look at the way they design things and actually see how they can actually service their client, how they can actually provide a solution to the client that meets their needs but goes beyond their expectation. And the role of assessment methodologies and standards is to create that framework to inspire professionals. That's why I'm here. That's why you know, I I'm, I'm passionately believe, based on the knowledge that I have in terms of advising ministers, working on construction sites at four in the morning, making sure that you know, we really do create things that actually drive the industry forward. And you know, what I've done here is I've tried to pepper into this presentation a number of quick sort of case studies just to demonstrate to you what that looks like. So there's a couple of slides here where various green buildings have actually gone and actually done that, actually taken an understanding of what sustainability looks like, but actually made sure that they see it from a social and economic and environmental perspective. So uh, this is an, an example of a hospital where they know that actually providing a good healing environment um, actually really helps the patients. So actually creating lots of daylight and creating a, a real feel within the hospital and a, and a real space where you can look out into the outside world and not just a clinical box. And those standards are incredibly important. And another example here of, a, of an office building so it's one standard which is basically assisted design professionals uh, to think about design differently. But BRE actually is in a, in a quite unique position. In fact, probably it is in a new, unique position. So we are a research-based charity. So uh, the money that we make through the assessments that we undertake, we put back into research. So at the moment, we're funding about, about 50 or 60 PhD students to actually help us to understand and to push the boundaries of what that science looks like. And I'll come back to that issue about knowledge-based research because I think that becomes important in terms of the whole conversation about risk. So when I talk about pushing the boundaries and inspiring people, that's about mature markets like we have in Finland and elsewhere in Europe in terms of what are standards and how do we actually make the change happen. But it's also about sharing that knowledge to a wider audience. So we've actually taken some of the knowledge that we've learned through assessments worldwide, and we've done quite a lot of work now with the Red Cross to understand how can you actually help people who've just been through a disaster? How can you actually make sure that in very fragile environments that you create 
sustainable buildings? How do you actually help that economy? How do you help people who have been through a massive shock, through an earthquake or a flood, to actually create better buildings using their local knowledge, their local materials, but actually drive that success? So when I talk about knowledge, it's not just about helping people within an informed audience, it's about sharing that knowledge uh, more equally. But what's important is for me to get back on, on the subject of what I've been asked to talk about. So when you talk about the future of sustainability, when we talk about where are we going, I think there's a, there's a number of important actors on the stage at the moment. We need to make sure that we uncouple this issue about cost and, and performance. That there are lots and lots of conversations that when I talk to people about sustainability, they say, well, that's great, Martin. Uh, we can actually design buildings to higher standards, but it's actually got a cost associated with it. It might mean that I actually have to pay more to, to drive that performance. We need to make sure that we uncouple that relationship so we can actually create high-performing buildings at lower cost, or we can at least understand what that cost equation is. So I've used examples here of, of a hospital. So if you're creating a better hospital and you actually increase the healing rates or you create a better school and you create a better learning environment, that's actually got a real benefit that we need to quantify. We need to understand if we're looking at a school environment, if I'm creating a good school with good acoustic properties and good sort of air quality and good daylighting, that the learning rates in that school are actually worth something from a social perspective. And also when we look at it from a performance perspective, I'm actually reducing the costs of operating that building. So when we start to talk about the cost, we need to make sure we see the full cost. But we also need to make sure that we're using new ideas in terms of how we can make that uncoupling happen. There's a lot of examples, and I've got one later on, I think, about the Olympics, that when we push the Olympics in terms of driving performance, there's been some massive learning um, points from that experience which is now really taking place in the UK construction industry. So lots of prefabrication is taking place now and actually uh, fabricating off-site and bringing to site um, partly fabricated units and dropping them into buildings because you get a higher quality and you can actually increase the or speed up the construction process. So when we talk about how we uncouple that, there are many different ways that we can do that. We also need to make sure we adapt so when we talk about adaption, we're talking about climate change adaption in terms of more extreme events and how does that look and what does that look and feel like. But we also need to understand about us as a society, our changing needs. If we look in residential sector, we've actually got massive changing needs in the residential sector in terms of an ageing population. How do we make sure our buildings are flexible to allow people to live in those buildings longer? And I think there's an interesting equation here when we talk about um, designing buildings and creating standards, that we do that in a way that is much more sensitive to the consumer. What are my needs um, as, as a client to you? How will my needs change in terms of a non-domestic building, in terms of the spaces you're creating for me? I need to make sure it's more adaptable because my business might increase or decrease in size. We also need to make sure that we're creating standards and we're actually responding to market transformation. How do we get the industry to respond quicker? How do we allow the industry to move quicker in terms of transforming uh, the impacts of buildings and making sure that we are really uh, driving that performance? And then an interesting issue which is emerging very rapidly for me 
is what's the relationship between regulation and voluntary standards? Uh, I'm starting to see in a number of countries where um, the industry is asking for less regulation. It's saying we actually want less burden placed on us to actually make sure that we're growing at our own pace and we're allowed to innovate. We don't want to be overly, overly regulated. So what's the space between regulation and actually voluntary standards? And can voluntary standards actually drive the market without the need for regulation? So reducing the burden for red tape, allowing the industry that space to perform. So that becomes, I think, a fascinating conversation. And in that process of those issues that I think are, are really starting to kind of sort of come into focus for me, it's about ensuring that we as professionals work together. So this is about ensuring you've got integrated teams, not actually passing the burden from the architect to the engineer. It's about actually having mature conversations to allow that integrated working. And design standards should allow that conversation to take place in a more fluid way. It's about making sure that the innovation cycles are quicker. If we look at some of the technologies that go into our buildings today, the rate of innovation is a lot, lot slower than if we look at other sectors. I'm quite sure if we all look at our mobile phone in our pockets today, it's actually not that old. Yet as we look at some of the technologies and some of the materials in our buildings, actually they're not that different from many years ago. And a good example, um, which I often quote to people is, um, I was walking around the innovation park at BRE with a colleague and we were looking at face change materials, which is still a relatively new concept in the uh, construction industry. And he was saying to me, when he worked um, uh, in, in the aerospace industry, they were using face change materials in satellites 40, 50 years ago. It's taken us that long to get that material into the construction sector. We are sometimes risk adverse. We need to actually understand where innovation sometimes is a good thing, how we need to allow the insertion of new technologies to build is to help us and assist us. Um, there's also a, quite a, a fascinating conversation which um, I'm having with lots of people around the relationship between sustainability and risk. So when I start to look at high performance buildings, are they low risk buildings? Because if we can actually make sure in the same way that we're uncoupling cost um, and sustainability, if we look at the issue about risk, then we have a really mature conversation with the insurance industries about can I actually, if I've got a high-performing building, have a lower premium? And also then the conversations also start to materialise as well around things like green bonds. You know, can I actually have financial mechanisms that are support buildings that are performing better? So those kind of issues, I think, are important drivers in this conversation in terms of, of how we improve. Another element of, of where I think the industry is going more and more is around um, products to services. So that there's an interesting space that I think is, is rapidly emerging in some countries where historically it was about creating a building and dropping services into that building based on what the procurement process was. What I'm seeing more and more with some of the informed product manufacturers is they're actually not just inserting the product into a building, they're actually providing a service on top of it. Uh, the example I, I've, I've got in a, in a slide later on is Schneider Electric is, 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 is sort of leading in some of this respect, where they're actually putting in HVAC systems, but they're now monitoring their performance 
against the design specification. And if they see a motor failing in a, in a system, they will come in as part of the contract, replace or service that motor so that you as the client or the building owner doesn't see a drop in performance. So the issue about product to service is becoming really quite sophisticated in terms of how can I make sure that the building is optimised and maintains the level of performance. And I think there's a whole space here that is starting to emerge as well about how can I make sure a product is fit for purpose? How can I make sure that product is sustainable? And there's some interesting um, issues and examples as well in terms of other products. So there's some cradle-to-cradle -cradle stuff going on around things like flooring, where when the flooring reaches the end of its life, it's not purchased, it's leased, and therefore the company comes back in and replaces it. Knowing how that product was manufactured, they can put that um, material back into the supply chain by recycling it. And what does that mean in terms of some of the building? So as I said just a few moments ago, I wanted to insert a few examples. So just to make sure that what I'm talking about is not abstract, it's not so far in the future that effectively you walk away from this conversation and say, well, that's really nice, a few interesting um, bullet points that I've written down. So I wanted just to insert some examples. So this is an example in Belgium where um, a, a whole development has been Bream Communities Assessed and the individual buildings have been Bream Assessed. And they've taken this whole philosophy about trying to drive the boundaries, trying to push the concept of the building further. So they've actually gone down a CHP route and actually provide that CHP solution at a community scale. So thinking about the scale of intervention, can I actually get a better return by thinking not about the building, but about the wider community? That development that I'm creating, can I actually put a, a, a community scale intervention for um, heat power in at that level which actually gives me a better impact, a better model for the occupiers of this building. And they've been incredibly successful and um, their, their development stands out uh, in Belgium in terms of what they're doing there. Um, the LSE um, New Student Centre in London as well has thought about that exactly that same concept. How can we make sure that we provide solutions which are actually delivering the best in terms of efficiency? So they've actually driven a very high fabric efficiency in terms of the facade and the building itself. But actually they, they're very mindful as well that that building isn't occupied um, 24 hours a day. It has a peak load. And so they've designed their, their tri-generation um, network so that when the students have gone, they export it to the neighbourhood. So their business model is actually changing as a result of how they thought beyond the building and how they thought about the, 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 the heat and cooling solution. And I think that issue about business models and how sustainability is about thinking about different business models becomes really quite interesting. So another example just to quickly give you here is this is a building in Manchester where it was, um, it's a development for um, a supermarket chain, a co-op, and they wanted to, to actually really drive their performance based on uh, their corporate responsibility. They wanted to demonstrate, because that's their brand identity, they wanted to demonstrate that their building was part of that philosophy of their organisation. So when it came to them thinking about their energy solution, not only did they put in an incredibly efficient fabric and they thought about CHP, they then thought about, so how are they going to power that CHP plant? 
and they were first of all thinking about first generation um, bio crops. So can we buy a farm to actually harvest bio crops to actually feed the CHP plant? We then said to them, well, that's actually not that sustainable because that's first generation crops. Why don't you actually take the waste oil, the cooking oil from all of your supermarkets and use that to power your CHP plant? And that's what they did. They've changed their business model, how the company organizes, uh, how the company works to think about how it actually supplies the energy in their headquarters. So that issue about business models and where do you stop the boundaries of what you're doing, I think becomes quite fascinating. Make sense? A few nods, great, excellent. And that's the point. So there's a single standard for new construction. It's called BREAM. But actually, the way people use it, the way people actually take its philosophy is different. So this isn't about creating standards about restricting people. This is about creating standards that inspire people to have those conversations within an organisation, to have those conversations with other design professionals and say, well, what can we do and what can we do differently? It's mindful of time, actually. Um, and in that process, the biggest challenge isn't actually our new construction. The biggest challenge, actually, is our existing stock. And... In that process of understanding how we drive change, uh, we've, we've kind of developed Bream in Use, which is about looking at what I have as a, as a, as a building owner or as a, as a facilities manager and actually creating a system, a process, a tool that allows you to go through and backwards and forwards to understand how I can improve. And I think what's important for me is the way we designed Bream in Use as an assessment methodology is about making it as accessible as possible. So it's about making the process online. It's about making sure the cost point of the assessment process is low. It's not about making sustainability exclusive. It's about making sustainability inclusive. And if you can start to look and understand how your building performs, set yourselves targets, maybe not even certify. So it comes back to what I was saying before. The, the, the objective is not to certify, the ob objective is in to improve. So if I can go through this process and improve and set myself some targets and then actually improve my building stock and then actually then feed that information into my CSR report to say, look what I've done, look how much energy I've saved, look how much water I've saved, it becomes part of a culture of an organisation. And, and a quick example here, which I've just thrown in um, as, as part of the conversation I was having with somebody, is that... If you use assessment tools in the right way, you can focus your energy in terms of where you put your time. So this is an example where a corporate went in and did a number of Bremen use assessments across its portfolio to actually then focus its resource to say, so those buildings which are poorly performing, what do I do about improving them? How do I actually understand what's going in my organisation where I can share that knowledge more freely, but how do I focus my energy to make sure that the buildings that need to improve can improve? And out of that process, they've actually saved money. So it comes back to this issue about value. This isn't just about a certification. This is about demonstrating that if you actually focus your time and your energy and actually look at standards that actually look at best practice, you can actually save um, substantial sums of money. Following that same theme of inserting examples, so I wanted to quickly just kind of just take that same philosophy and show you a real live example. So this is um, the Hive in Paris. 
when they brought the, the building originally, um, the energy consumption was about 320, that's kilowatt per meter square per annum. They're now in a position, using Bream in use and using new technologies in that space, that this year, or probably start of next year, they're looking at 60. So they've actually driven the performance and actually driven the energy efficiency of that building to such a space that the, the consumption now is so much lower than the building that they first purchased. And this isn't a building they own, this is a building they rent. And so the, the relationship between the landlord and the tenant has become a really interesting conversation about how do I drive performance when actually it isn't even my own building. So driving from 320 down to 74 as it is now, but getting to a point of 60 the end of this year, beginning next year, demonstrates that even in our existing stock, you can actually drive massive, massive changes in performance. There's a lot of, I mean, I could do a whole hour-long presentation on some of these slides if you want me to, but um, the comment I made before, which I think is important as well, is when we talk about sustainability, the scale of intervention becomes important. So when we talk about, you know, what's the right scale, you need to really be very mindful of understanding how you can drive change. So if I look back a number of years, when we talked about sustainability, we're talking about component level. We're now talking about building level. But the big, big issue is about can we go beyond the building level to look at that wider uh, process? And so Bream Communities helps us in that process. Um, the comment after make at this point, whoops, go back, at this point is, We've been very bad at designing communities. When we look at what we've done historically in terms of designing communities, we've just constructed that we've not built um, ways by which communities work together in terms of understanding how the building reacts with a transport network and the network reacts with the, the requirements of society in terms of where do I go to work, where do I uh, want to take my leisure time. And so actually going back and looking at some of these issues and ensuring that we create communities that are sensitive to the environmental needs of, of society, but are actually great places to work, um, are vibrant economies, have sound governance in terms of that transparency and inclusivity, but also, you know, we make decisions based on sound science. And I think that's one of the, the issues that I'm really quite passionate about is when we make decisions, we need to make sure we've got science behind it so we can stand up and we can justify why we're doing things differently. So Bream Communities, which we've introduced back in 2009, I think it's one of the first things that I did when I sort of joined BRE, is about looking at that wider space. How do I create spaces around buildings which can drive performance, which means that when I walk out the front door of a building, an office, whatever it might be, that I'm actually part of a community which actually has value, which actually really, really makes a difference. What's also important is this isn't about new communities. This is about actually correcting uh, historic mistakes as well. So going back and remodeling existing communities is an important part of this equation. So to get me, I keep on putting these slides in just to remind me what I'm supposed to be talking about because I could actually talk about lots of things here. The other issue which going forward is going to be fundamentally in terms of driving and changing this agenda is data. Um, when I look at what's happening at the moment, as a society, as an industry, we're much more conscious of what we need to do. And one of the things that is actually going to shape this agenda much, much more in the future is all around data and data transparency 
and actually making sure data demonstrates, you know, if I'm buying a product, that that product actually is fit for purpose and is doing what it says it's doing. And if we start to see what's happening around us in terms of, I mentioned the mobile phone example, and I could mention Google, and I could mention lots of people, data is becoming much more accessible. You know, I've got apps on my phone where I can wander around a city and it will tell me what's around the next corner. It will tell me if I want to find something, where it is. Exactly the same technology is being developed around buildings. And so as you install technologies in a building, you QR tag it. So when it comes to refurbishing it, you know exactly what's behind that panel because you've actually got the data when you've designed it. So, so BIM and building management systems and the data around that is going to become a massive driver in terms of how we understand our building's performance and the transparency of the product manufacturer providing that product in the building and what it's actually done becomes really powerful. There are some really interesting social networks appearing around this space where there are conversations now around buildings, around I work in a building and how does it feel for me? I was the architect of this building and what did I design it to achieve? I was the engineer, this is what I installed, did it work? And I think what's going to happen more and more is that is going to be a way that people are going to start to select architects and engineers, not just based on the value of the project, but also have they got a good track record? Are they designing buildings? Are they creating buildings which are great spaces to work based on all that information coming together? So one of the things that we're doing a lot of work on at the moment is around the BIM agenda, making sure that BREAM as it stands at the moment actually becomes a next generation product which actually plugs straight into design tools so that we actually make sure that we're enabling these services and we're actually really helping the industry to change and, to, and actually do, do it quicker so that you can model a building and you can do design scenarios. So I can actually start to sit down with a client and say, so what are your aspirations for this building in 10 years' time? And if you want to look at its occupancy rate or you want to change its design, you know, how do we do that in a way that's more flexible? What happens if energy prices change in the next five years? Would it be better to insert technologies now, which is sensitive to that? Would it be better to actually increase the fabric efficiency because you know that actually your costs are going to go up in terms of energy consumption? Would it be better to maybe wire the building differently to allow you to insert a CHP plant in the future? Those kind of design factors and those scenario plans will become really, really important. So. Um, watch out in terms of some of the work we're doing in terms of enabling that conversation. And I think what's important is that the data that we collect through the design process and the assessment process uh, is made more freely available. So in the next couple of months, uh, our BREAM website will change where you can actually access the data for some of the assessments. It's all anonymised, so it hasn't actually got company names in it, but you can start to see how certain buildings were designed and how certain buildings are performing based on certain credits which were used and the value associated with it. So am I seeing a return on investment in terms of how certain credits have driven performance? Because if I'm suggesting you need to be more transparent, then equally so do we. So mindful of time, in fact, I've, I've vastly overrun, so apologies. Um, I was thinking about something to end on, just to kind of just to get you to think. So I was racking my brains this morning. So, do most of you know about the alien story? You know, the film The Alien? 
So if you don't, that's a quick synopsis of, you know, I think most probably probably seen Alien. So it's a story where, you know, you have one perception of what's going on, and as the story unravels, actually the perception changes. Actually, the, the people who actually landed on this planet were um, actually unconscious of what was going on. So you, one lesson you can learn from that alien story is actually, um, if you don't know what's going on, just don't get too close to the unknown. So basically, you know, when you know what's going, that's fine. But if you don't, actually, just watch out. And I think that for me is a, is, is a kind of a summary of what we're trying to do in Bream is that we're here actually to make sure that you don't have a disaster. So Bream is about that knowledge. We're here on a design project to actually help and share best practice. We're here to make sure the research that we've been doing for 90 years is shared among the industry because effectively what Bream is, whether it's new construction, in use or communities, is about creating a knowledge base, sharing it with you, but creating standards that inspire you to do better. And just to finish on, a couple of quick examples. So I've mentioned before about the Olympics. We set standards for the 2012 Olympics in London, which the industry hated me for, because we said, this is the Olympics, this is funded in a way that we want you to go further. And when we issued the procurement spec for the ODA, because we worked very closely with them, they didn't like it, they pushed back, they complained to ministers. But at the end of the process, all of the people in that procurement process have created new products, driven performance, changed the culture of their organisation, and adopted that as business as usual. So pushing people sometimes, based on good science and good knowledge, can actually take people a long, long way. And for you, as design professionals, this is about making sure that we really see the benefit stream of what we do. This is about building high quality buildings, but make sure that we do that uncoupling. And this is about making sure that we create a construction industry that's agile and that we allow those technologies to be inserted quickly. So it's exciting times as far as I'm concerned, but it's about really the mood that you set in terms of how you want to approach it. If you want to go back to that first slide from the financial time and not embrace change, that's up to you. But actually the business models you create, the ideas you create for your companies, actually can really put you into a good space. Thank you. AEC-Business.com Business inspiration for architects, engineers and contractors.